All right, we, uh, it's an exciting passage that we're looking at. It's a life-changing passage in the life of the church. I want to stay close to my notes because as I've studied this passage, there's so much truth here. There's so much that th- this passage reveals us about a sovereign God who acts sovereignly. It reveals to us about the messenger who is being prepared and how God is continuing to shape and mold this man, Peter. And so much that God reveals to us about a lost man, culturally distant from the Jews, distant from God's people, not previously a part of the revelation of God, and yet now exposed to the truth of God, and as a result, totally transformed. And there's so much here about the church. And so we're going to spend actually several messages in Acts chapter 10. We're going to start today with how God prepares Peter the preacher, God's preparation for this man, this man who paid, played such a key role in the establishment and the foundation of the church. One of the things that we see right off the bat that God has to deal with in Peter's life, but not only in Peter's, but all of the Christian church at that time, was the issue of prejudice, the issue of prejudice, specifically in this case, racial, national, and cultural prejudice. That means by which simply an attitude toward a person on the basis of his or her group membership, whether that group is a nation, the color of their skin, the language that they speak. It can be even which side of the tracks that they were raised on if that terminology makes any sense to you. And the Bible makes it clear that that has no place in the heart of a Christian or in the life, the living expression of the life of Christ in his church. And there was a lot of racial prejudice at the time of this writing. The ancient Greeks divided up the human race into two categories. They said there are Greeks... And there are barbarians. Now, the Greek language is a beautiful language. A barbarian to them was simply a person who couldn't speak Greek. And so their words sounded to the Greek ear like bar, 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 bar. One Greek historian asked rhetorically, how can men who can only ever bark rule the world? And so the Greeks were pretty proud of their culture, pretty proud of their language, and they tended to be pretty dismissive of those who were not Greek. Prejudice is not eradicated with brilliance. Of course, Aristotle was brilliant. Aristotle believed that the world's climate maintained the difference between Greeks and barbarians. He thought hot area and cold area made the difference. He explained that those who lived in cold lands to the north had plenty of courage and spirit, but not much skill and intelligence. And those who lived in the warm south had plenty of skill and intelligence and culture, but not much spirit and courage. Only the Greeks who lived in that perfect climate had the combination of all. That's just kind of ridiculous. But that was what Aristotle wrote. Now, were the Jews prejudiced? Did the Jews have cultural bias against other people? They did. Uh, God's people, those who were given the oracles of God, uh, were Jews. And they had been commanded for centuries to remain separate, to remain separate from other nations. Now, Peter was a Jew, and he had all of these teachings. He had all of this culture, centuries worth, and all of his life, all of this had been ingrained in him. One of the things that he was taught was, 
Samaritans are half-breeds. Samaritans are those who have rejected the clear teaching of God. And a Jew and a Samaritan, you guys remember the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 15. Jews and Samaritans did not intermingle. The Jews looked down upon the Samaritans. And yet, God has already taken Peter to Samaria, where Philip had been with the gospel. And Peter has seen the Samaritans respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was there when he prayed for them, and the Spirit fell upon them. And there was this kind of Samaritan Pentecost as a witness to the Jews and to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that now, not only are the full-blooded Jews who have been devout, not only can we be Christians, but those half-blooded Jews who intermingle with other races and who have been anathema, now they can be Christians as well. But now, there's a further stretch. Peter has been exposed more to the grace of God among all peoples. He had seen what Philip had accomplished and what the Holy Spirit had accomplished in Samaria. And we find him then on his way back coming and preaching. And last week, we left him at the house of Simon the Tanner. Do you guys remember that? A tanner is a man who works with the skins and hides of dead animals, which is an unclean profession. And a devout Jew who worshipped in the temple on a regular basis could not associate with a tanner because he was ritually unclean. He could not participate himself in the rituals and the rites of the, and the sacrifices and the systems of the Jewish temple. And yet we find Peter making himself at home in the house of Simon the tanner. And now, through Peter, God opens the church to include Italians, the, Gen- the Romans, the Gentiles. And so Peter is about to remove this last barrier uh, between Jew and Gentile. And it's going to be hard because all of his life he has been ingrained with Jewish traditions. He's been ingrained with the legalism that has been coming down to him, this kind of super nationalism. And it's almost an intolerant kind of ingraining so that there isn't any room for Samaritans and no room for Gentiles who are considered unclean. But in Christ, it has to be removed. It's got to be dealt with. God has to change his heart. God has to change their heart. God has to, and we'll see, by the way, as we go through this passage, you're going to see eternal principles, eternal principles that are applied to us through this historical event. In the New Covenant, the design of God is to take the two divisions, the Jew and everybody else, the Gentile, and to make them into what Paul calls one new man. This is Paul's great message when he defines the church in Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 11, he says, Remember that you, the Gentiles, in in times past, Gentiles in the flesh, he, he discusses what that means. He said, You are without Christ. You are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You are strangers to the covenants of promise. And he just says you are without hope in the world. You are uh, cut off and without God in the world. You are cut off from everything that God was doing. But then in verse 13, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off were made near. You were separated You were pushed away. Now, there's no longer Jew and Gentile. In this church, it's about bringing the whole world, every tongue, every tribe, every culture, every nation, together into one new creation, the body of Christ, the church. And in chapter 3, he says, this is the mystery that the Jew and the Gentile would be one body. Well, this this is hard for Jews to grasp. 
it would have been hard for them to understand because the Jews looked down on the Gentiles. We were talking earlier, I looked up some of the rabbinical laws in my study for this passage. Did you know that a Jew could not eat in the home of a Gentile? If a Gentile invited you over, somebody who wasn't a Jew, you had to refuse to eat in their home. But the dietary laws and rabbinic restrictions that were in place at this time went further than that. If a Gentile milked the cow and you were a devout Jew, you couldn't drink that cow's milk. Had to be milked by a Jewish person to be kosher and appropriate. The, the lines of discrimination, particularly when it came to food, were harsh. And I believe there are several purposes for this. Uh, do you know why God gave the dietary laws in the Old Testament? Do you remember the dietary laws? Leviticus chapter 11. We went through this in our daily Bible reading not too long ago. You guys remember what joy you had reading about what they could and could not eat? And do you remember why God gave them the Jewish dietary laws, particularly in the wilderness? There are a couple of reasons. I believe, of course, first is simply for their health and well-being. There was no refrigeration. There were things they could eat, things they could not eat. There were animals that could cause infection on them. They were traveling through the wilderness, and God had provided for them manna. And so you've got certainly the health. But I believe that God in his powerful sovereignty could have kept them healthy, don't you? So why in the world would God give them these dietary laws when he could just intervene? Well, I believe it was more than that. It was also separation. In Luke, I'm Luke, Leviticus chapter 25, you have the passage where um, God describes again the dietary laws. And at the end of that, he says, in order that you may remain distinct, that you may remain a separate people. How do people fellowship together? We're good Baptists. How do Baptists fellowship? Food. Let's have a meal. And we'll sit down over the table together. How do you open your heart to someone else? What is the clearest sign of that? Come and sit at my table. Let me prepare a meal for you. You know that you have friends or that you're open to people when you invite them over or when you are invited over and you're actually able to sit and open your minds and your hearts and your lives to one another and you talk and you fellowship. Part of the reason of these dietary laws, according to Luke, uh, Leviticus chapter 24, is, is that God has said, I want you as a people to remain distinct from the other cultures around you. They're going into the promised land. They're going to a land that was surrounded by pagan cultures. And he did not want them to adopt the practices of these pagan cultures, but to remain faithful to him. Now, the stage is set for God to make this radical change in Peter's mind and in the minds of the Christians, the churches who have come together in Christ. We have Cornelius, a Gentile Roman soldier who represents the despised occupation of Israel. He resides in the main city. There's a, a Caesarea, is a beautiful coastal town. It is the Roman head of government in this area. They have uh, um, 6,000 soldiers there, 6,000 uh, six legions of soldiers there, and those soldiers are divided up into groups, and those groups are divided up into the, the smallest group, I think, is the cohort uh, where a centurion is over. 30 miles south, you have a Jewish apostle temporarily residing in a spot where Jonah, by the way, Joppa, you guys familiar? I'm, you guys familiar where Jonah fled when God sent him to Nineveh? And Jonah said, I don't like them Ninevites. I don't want anything to do with them Ninevites. And God, I can't go preach because I know you. You're a merciful, loving God, and they'll repent, and you'll save them, and I don't want them saved. And so he ran the other way. He went to Joppa, this same town. So we have a long history of separation, but also a long history of animosity among these people. 
behind the scenes, God is orchestrating events to bring these two men together, this Jewish believer who is a follower of Christ and this Roman soldier who is a devout and pious man. And the way he brought them together was shocking for both to break down the walls of prejudice between them. And the result of our account today, kind of the point that we're going to with this message today, is that you and I, who are Gentiles and fellow heirs and fellow members of the church with the Jews, are fellow partakers with the promise of God, of God, the promise of God through Jesus Christ and the gospel. We are fellow partakers with every person of every language, every culture, every background, every group identity. There is no one on the face of the earth that the blood of Christ is not sufficient to save. There's no one we should not reach. There's no one on the face of the earth, man born of woman. Uh, there's no one that we should say, you aren't worthy of the gospel. You aren't worthy of grace. Because the truth is that we're all, none of us, worthy of gospel. It's all about grace. And so the first thing I think we just need to note is Peter was prejudiced. Cornelius would have been prejudiced as well. Unless we point the finger, we are all prone to prejudice. Whether this is inherent, and again, part of my studies, I read, I read a lot of writing on prejudice and bias, racism, cultural animosity. And uh, it, it, prejudice, of course, you will have some people say it's inherent in every heart. It's natural is what occurs. Others say, no, it is informed by ideology, it is informed by culture. I'm going to tell you, whatever its source, its source is a sinful heart before a holy God. And whatever else you need to know is that all of us have to deal with, however we, we, it, it originated in us, we have to deal with prejudices that may be even concealed from us. I was raised in South Mississippi. And I went to a good church with a good pastor. And uh, through Sunday school, and we would sing the songs, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. You guys remember the song? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. We were taught to say and to believe we love everybody. But i got a news for you. It's one thing for you to have this as a theology or have this as a philosophy of life. We're going to love everybody. It's something else to live it day by day. Paul taught this in Ephesians 2, where he said, You Gentiles were far off, and the Jews had the oracles of God. Then Christ came, and it's no longer Jew and Gentile, but now there's one body, one new creation, believers, the Christian church, and we are united in him. That's the theology and the practice of it we see in history here in the circumstance with Peter and Cornelius. And later, the church at Jerusalem and Cornelius, and then the Gentile church that is started in Antioch in Romans chapter 11. And so we need to make sure and ask God to examine our hearts and to reveal any prejudice, any um, barrier to the display of the love of Christ to any person based upon their group identity, based upon... Uh, their culture, their language, or, or any differentiation along, along that means. It's important that we grasp that. Suzanne and I had the privilege of living in South Texas for five years. We lived 20 minutes away from the Mexican border. 
we were, got to be church planters down there, and we, uh, we, uh, over 90% of the population was of Mexican descent or, or uh, were Mexicans. The language was predominantly Spanish. Uh, there were jobs that she could not get because she didn't speak Spanish. Uh, she understands it pretty well. Be careful what you say. But uh, it, it, was a, it was a different culture and a different world, and we had to adapt to that culture. And there were discriminations. There were prejudices that God unrooted in our hearts, but also that got unrooted in the hearts of the people that we were able to minister to there. And we need to make sure that we don't allow prejudice to create barriers to the love of Christ expressed through his gospel. And so we need to recognize that we're all called to prejudice, and we can be grateful that God works in us continually to conform us to his image. As with any sinful behavior, God graciously breaks us in order to work through us. Let me tell you what God will do when you get saved. He'll change your thinking. He will change the way you view people, groups of people. Uh, he'll change your, 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 your understanding of what's right and what's wrong according to his word and the commandments of Scripture and the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us as Christ lives his righteousness through us. But those deeper and underlying, almost secretive things that tend to be drivers in our culture and the way we relate to people, God will break your heart and he will break those, I don't know, chains. He will break those uh, habits. He will break those thought patterns that he needs to break for his glorious, for his glory. Now, he prepares Cornelius for this encounter. We're going to look at that next week. We're going to look at how God saved an Italian soldier. And all the steps that are involved in his conversion, because there are principles in that, truths in that, clearly revealed in Scripture, that are true about how God saved you. And clearly true about how God uses you as a messenger to see other people come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But today we're going to look at how God prepares Peter. God chose Peter to be his messenger. Peter was on the way. He was going places, preaching the gospel. He was not sitting around waiting for something to happen. He was being obedient to the extent that he knew to be obedient. He was going around preaching the gospel. God had sent an angel to Cornelius. The angel knew the gospel perfectly well. And the angel could have simply said, when Cornelius prayed, the angel showed up. The angel could have said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers. God has seen your faithfulness. And, 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 and so God has decided to save you. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repeat this prayer. Sign this card. I'm sorry, a little tongue-in-cheek there. But he could have simply said, Cornelius, all you have to do is to believe in Jesus Christ, explain the gospel, and, and the angel could have been the messenger. But God did not do that. God had predetermined, God had set in place a messenger that he was preparing. And this gospel encounter, listen to me, Christians, this gospel encounter was as impactful on the life of Peter, practically, as it was upon the life of Cornelius. Because of his change in perspective, because this, this conforming to the image of Christ, this, this being different than when he was when he started out. He could have left, God could have left Peter completely out of the loop, but he didn't. He chose to, to use him. He gave uh, instructions to Cornelius on how to contact Peter so that Peter could go and preach the gospel to him. And I, I just love that he, God chooses this Peter who represents everything uh, who, that is a loyal Jew, a legalistic, nationalistic, loyal Jew who has given his life to Christ. And he sends him to a Gentile who represents something that every loyal Gentile would detest, a Roman occupying soldier. 
a military commander from the occupying Roman forces. Peter had to be made extremely uncomfortable. God did this. I love this also. God was gracious with Peter. We just read the text. Peter was hungry. It was lunchtime. He was up on the roof. What was he doing there? Do you know? He was waiting on lunch. But what was he doing while he waited? He was praying. And as he prayed, God spoke to him. By the way, there's a simple principle there. When did God speak to Cornelius? While he was praying. If you want to hear from God, it is important that you open your heart to God through the process of prayer by speaking to him. And God spoke to Peter while he was praying. And he sent down this thing that had snakes and pigs and, and maybe cattle and the good things, uh, flying birds of the air uh, and bad things, things that no Jew would eat. I want you to understand a, a little bit about this. Um, just to reread this verse, verse 11, Peter saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Uh-uh, not going to happen. I think he probably thought he was being tested by God because he had received the instructions of Leviticus and he had been on that Jewish strict diet from, from the time he was born, raised in a Jewish household. Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. But God spoke to him a second time. And he said, what God has made clean, do not call common. Don't call that defiled. Don't call that unworthy. This happened three times. Three times. And the thing was taken up back up to heaven. Note this. There were both clean and unclean animals in the sheet. Leviticus 11 says, uh, gives us the description of the clean and unclean dietary laws, both for health and for separation. I told you before, and I gave you the wrong, I said Leviticus 24. It's Leviticus 20, 25 through 26. And I just want to read that again. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. Why? Verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. This was a cultural distinction. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord. Don't call what I've made clean unclean. Three times the message come. Now, why does this happen? What is important truth here? Two things I think that are very important. I want to get these pretty quickly. First of all, he was demolishing Old Testament Jewish dietary laws. God was demolishing, wiping out, undoing completely Old Testament Jewish dietary laws. Because they were designed to separate the Jew from the Gentile. What is the body of Christ designed to do? Bring them together in one new body. We have to learn to be able to socialize around the table, become one. Yeah, you know what most of the fights or many of the fights in the New Testament were about? You can't read Romans. You can't read 1 Corinthians without knowing what they were fighting about. Should I eat a meat offered to an idol or should I not? What was that about? That was about Jewish dietary laws and Greek dietary habits 
coming together. And so inside the body of Christ, when they would have a fellowship, what would they do? All of the kosher people would eat at these tables, and all of the non-kosher people would eat at those tables, and there was disunity and disharmony and separation in the life of the church. What is Romans 14 about? Do you remember what Romans 14 is about? We preached a series on that here. I've preached it three times in my 18 years as a pastor here. And the title of the series is When Christians Disagree. And what Paul tells them is, you Jewish Christians... The dietary laws are done. There's nothing that God considers unclean that he he has created, he has made clean. You can eat it all, but for your conscience sake, if you need to not, you are free to not. What you cannot do is impose those laws on Gentile believers. And you Gentile guys who go to the temple and buy meat, and you bring it in, and you cook it up and eat it. Praise the Lord. It's good meat. But what you cannot do is force the Jew who has this as a matter of conscience not to eat. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Are you with me? Have I lost you completely? Y'all like to cook? We should have made this a cooking, a cooking lesson. This, it's important to grasp. What we're talking about here, it seems to be, should I eat this or should I not eat this? What God is saying is, listen, I want you to understand that in Christ, there's no longer Jew nor Gentile. Just like in Christ, there's no longer male or female. Just in, like in Christ, there's no longer bond or free. We are a new thing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever you were, your culture that you were raised in, the community that you became a part of, whatever you were in Christ, all of us come together as a loving, caring body. Why is so much of the New Testament about honoring one another? about being humble and seeking the best for one another. Because it was radical culture clash when the gospel came to an area and to a community. We all have some sort of bias. We need to be praying that God will break us of that. And we need to be grateful that God graciously, step by step, just like he did with Peter, step by step, opens our eyes to these sins that we can confess and repent in order that he can work through us to accomplish his mission to every tongue, every tribe, every kindred, every nation. We have to, the first thing he was doing away with was simply dietary laws, but the second thing he was doing with, a general lesson, is that in this little uh, sheet that came down with the animals on it, they represented the clean and the unclean. Uh, the, I believe that the, the, the tarp, the sheet, the blanket represents the church that includes both Jew and Gentiles. And then uh, after three times they received up to heaven, the Lord repeated the vision three times for Peter in order to impress the point on him. There's no more barrier on food, but far more significant for you and I. There's no more barrier on people. God sovereignly chose Cornelius to be saved. And he chose the most reprehensible representative as far as class, station, and occupation that a devout Jew could imagine. And we need to not draw any lines that God does not draw. Amen? Are you with me on that? It's so important that we grasp that. Immediate obedience. Peter, when he heard this, he was inwardly perplexed when he saw the vision about what he should do. And while he was sitting there thinking about it, they knock at the door. God's divine timing. It could not be any better. While he's sitting there pondering, what could this possibly mean? Uh, Two 
three Gentiles, a Roman soldier and two servants from Cornelius' house, knock at the door and they say, Simon the Tanner, is there a man here named Simon Peter? We would have a word with him. And while he's in this trance, pondering these things, God says, go down and talk to him. These are the folks I sent. These are the folks I sent. Immediate obedience. No sooner had the vision ended than the three visitors from Caesarea arrived. Peter could have told them where the local Gentile motel was, but he invited them in to to Simon the Tanner's house. Fed them. They slept, spent the night. The next day, he went up. When he got to Cornelius' house, he was surprised. I think Peter was surprised. He carried a group with him, a team with him, representatives with him. But when he got there, it wasn't just Cornelius. You know what Cornelius was doing after he sent those guys off to get Peter? He was preparing for Peter to come. It was never any doubt in Cornelius' mind that God had a messenger for him. Never any doubt. I bet Peter would have had doubts. Had not God prepared him and sent him, and yet he replied and responded in in obedient, immediate obedience. Peter's opening comment about, hey, you guys, you know it's unlawful for a Jew to... Enter the house of a Gentile, you know it's unlawful for a Jew to to come and spend any time defiling himself by entering the abode, fellowshipping with the Gentile. That was not an insult. That was simply a statement of the rabbinic teaching of the day. He was acknowledging the obvious and explaining why he was deliberately violating the commonly understood culture of his day. And Peter said, what do you want? You sent for me. Here I am. Cornelius answers and says, I had a vision. A devout man, a pious man. By the way, here's, here's a great truth. Cornelius was a good man. He was what the Bible calls devout, pious. He gave alms away. He had a good reputation in the Jewish community. And when he prayed and he asked God, I don't know what he prayed. We're not given the substance of his prayer. But there's no question but that he was seeking God, that he wanted to hear from God, that he wanted to know God, that he wanted to honor God, that he wanted to please God. And when the angel comes, you know what the angel tells him? Not you're good enough. Not you've done what you need to do. Not any sort of affirmation on his goodness. The angel tells him, you need to hear the gospel. And so you need to send to Peter this Jewish fisherman who's been radically transformed. I want you to know that they could have, Cornelius could have said, I don't want to hear from, from a Jewish fisherman. I'm devout. I'm, I'm, there, there are three classifications of Gentiles in that world from the Jewish perspective. They were just the pagans who wanted nothing to do with the Jews and mocked the Jews. They ridiculed the Jews. Uh, obviously, there was not a good relationship between Jews and Gentiles. You see it again and again and again. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it's, it's complete in Scripture. Uh, even when Pilate says, am I a Jew? Uh, in a very dis- disdainful way when he's called to give give judgment upon the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there was, there's so much animosity against the Jews by the Gentiles equally to what the Jews had against the Gentiles. Then you had the God-fearers. These were people who had been exposed to the God of, Jeru- of the Jews, the, the real God, the one true God. They had been exposed to Jewish teaching. They uh, were uh, uh, seeking to know more of God. They would... Uh, 
many times go and worship in the synagogue and study the scriptures and seek to be obedient. These were called God-fearers. You see, we'll see them repeatedly as we go through Acts. But the third were the proselytes. And these were the Jews, uh, the Gentiles, who actually decided to become Jews, become practicing Jews. And they would submit themselves to all the Jewish laws and customs, including circumcision, including following the dietary laws. And so you had the, the pagans, you had the God-fearers, and you had the proselytes. Cornelius was a God-fearer, a good devout man. And he could have said, I know enough of, of Judaism that I want somebody from the Sanhedrin to come talk to me. Give me Gamaliel. Give me somebody with a reputation. Why would I want some north country fisherman to come and tell me the gospel? But he didn't. He recognized Peter as God's messenger. Peter could have said, I'm willing to go to any Jew you want me to go to, but I don't want to go to a Roman soldier's house. But he didn't. He was willing to go. Let me tell you something. And the third point in the outline, and and, and I want to go ahead and, and tie this up. Again, I would encourage you to Please make plans to come back next week as we get further into this. But one of the glorious things that the gospel does is it does away with partiality and prejudice. We see that in God's preparation of Peter, when Peter comes and he stands before Cornelius' family, and he says, God has shown me that I should call no man common or unclean. There's no one not worthy of hearing the gospel of Christ. By the way, no one is worthy of the gospel. You understand what grace is. But there's not a line that we draw where we say they're not worthy of hearing the gospel of Christ. And then he goes in verse 34 and simply says, one of the things that I am learning, one of the things I have learned, is that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation. There is a good bit of discussion in theological circles about the blood of Christ. Did Jesus shed his blood to pay the penalty for sin? That we might be forgiven of sin as the perfect Lamb of God, as the perfect sacrifice... Slayed before the foundation of the world, did Jesus shed his blood that we might be forgiven of sin, washed in the blood, that we may, might be made new at, 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 at Calvary? Did he? Yes or no? Yes, he did. Does that apply to every person? Was, well, and I'm going to ask a little bit different question. Is that sufficient for every person? Is Jesus' blood sufficient for the salvation of every person? Man, woman, boy, girl, every language, every color skin, every culture, every economic status, every social status, is that, is that genuinely true? It is. It is. The Bible is abundantly clear that the blood of Christ is sufficient without exception for every group of people on the face of the earth. So what does that mean for you and I? At the very least, it means if there are racial groups in this city that you despise, you are resisting the Holy Spirit. If there are any person identified as a group of people that you despise or that you are not willing to actively display, I don't mean a group of people that are engaged in a specific sin and you give approval of their sin. We're not talking about that. We're talking about 
opening your minds, opening your hearts. And by the way, the best example of that, I believe, is clear in this, opening your tables. How was the New Testament church first identified? House to house, breaking bread together. Opening your tables, opening your homes, opening your hearts to people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every kindred, every identity. I will tell you that that it is so hard sometimes for us to overcome those things. And it requires the power of God working into us, but we have a gracious God who is continually working in us to change us to look like Jesus, to change us to have Jesus' attitudes, to change us to fill us with the love of Christ, recognizing who we are and who we aren't, but who we are in Christ Jesus, so that we can display that love practically to the people around us. Greenville is a city that needs the gospel. And every neighborhood in Greenville needs the gospel. And God placed us in the West End community 132 years ago. And we're going back. Now, we're not limited to the West End community. You all have neighborhoods. You have people around your home and people in your workplace and people you come across every day but as a congregation God's giving us a a mission point if you will in a very diverse community and we need to ask God to make sure that we don't draw any lines that he hadn't drawn that he identifies whatever prejudice whatever lines we've drawn that we can own it and confess it as sin and that we open our eyes that we allow God to graciously break those things in order to work through us to bring the gospel to every person in that community without partiality, without prejudice, with equal passion. Why? Because of the blood of Christ. Because of the amazing love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for this example, this historical reality that... um, You used this man, Peter, in Cornelius' life. You used Cornelius in Peter's life. And what you you did was you used this as an example of, of how we're to live our lives, how we're to open our minds and our hearts and our lives, our tables, how we're to share food and, and share life with people who are different than we are. Father, help us to become people who love the world. And when I say the world, not the things of the world, not the passions of the world, but to love the world as you love the world. Father, you love the world to the extent that you sent your son to the world. And that is every person in the world without exception, every people without distinction, rather, every people without distinction, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Make that be our passion and our understanding and our driving force as well. Father, we love you. In your name I pray. Amen.